It's Friday, May 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Millennials at the far end of the spectrum are turning 38 this year, and they're approaching middle age. The bad news is that they are playing catch-up in the game of life. New data shows that they are in worse financial shape than every preceding living generation and may never recover. A lot of factors go into why millennials are in their current situation. They began working life when the recession hit. They have less wealth, less property, lower marriage rates, and fewer children. Paul Overberg, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the current state of millennials and the impacts on the future. Next, if you're accused of stealing an animatronic robot from Disney World, it's probably a smart idea not to start a Disney-related Twitter account and post pictures of the stolen robot. Patrick Spikes has been accused of stealing over $14,000 in items from Disney World, using underground tunnels to get backstage, and then selling them online for at least $30,000. Kelly Weil, reporter for The Daily Beast, joins us for how Spikes was sneaking around and stealing out of the back door of Disney. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Complex issue. I think there are medical reasons, there are social reasons, there are financial reasons. According to the survey, the top two reasons for delaying parenthood amongst millennials financial security, it costs a lot of money, and career aspirations. Joining us now is Paul Overberg, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about millennials' age group that's going to be overtaking baby boomers very soon. And the article that you guys wrote up at the Wall Street Journal is about how they're playing catch-up in the game of life as millennials are approaching their middle ages. They're kind of in a crisis. Middle age is usually about 45 to 65. On the oldest end of millennials right now, they're about 38. I think they'll be all be turning 38 this year, the oldest ones. And they're just in worse financial shape compared to every living generation ahead of them. They're lagging behind the baby boomers and Generation X. And this is all despite a decade of economic growth and falling unemployment. So what's happening to them? Well, there's several things going on. One is they had the unlucky debut in the job market. They came of age and into the labor market in the recession and its aftermath. That can have, as economists have found, sort of lasting effects on your lifetime earnings trajectory. One of the things that also has affected it is, in general, they've continued a pattern that previous generations have had had, where they're sort of moving slower into the full-fledged adulthood that maybe their grandparents entered in their 20s in terms of going to college, getting an advanced degree, getting married, buying a house. Millennials are the slowest generation that we've seen in the last since World War II in terms of doing that. And a lot of those things add up to the ability to start accruing assets and wealth. Personally, I'm 36, so I am at the far end of the millennial age group. And reading through this, I mean, it's almost holding up a mirror to my life. When I started working, it was right when the recession hit and I lost my job. I was unemployed right off the bat for, you know, some months. And it wasn't until after that that I finally settled into some radio stuff and my career grew from there. But it was a rocky start at first. Similarly, I do not own a house. You know, it's tough. Things are so expensive. I live in California, so that compounds it. It's just crazy out here. So tell us about all these different factors that are happening to millennials. Like you said, there's the birth rates are low, marriage rates are low, buying these houses. Tell us a little bit about some of these numbers. One of the things that also is affecting millennials is that they, as a generation, have much more student debt. And that is a huge impediment to things like saving for retirement or saving for a house, or even being able to sort of commit to a marriage because there's 
tax complications, but just you become legally responsible for the other person's college debts when you get married. That's one of those things that is sort of also sort of breaking this sort of trajectory into the full-fledged adulthood and the ability to actually be part of an economic unit that might be more efficient and productive than, than being single. That itself is a strange number because millennials as a group are better educated than any other generation before them. But that is that problem there is that student debt. I think you profiled a couple who their combined student debt was $377,000. That's insurmountable for a lot of people sometimes. That couple in particular, that included law school debt. And so it was graduate school. And they're doing actually pretty well. And they've got a really good financial plan. And they think that they'll be on a good trajectory as they move into middle age. But they, in some ways, they sort of are the exception. If you're going to take on a lot of debt early in life, you you have to have great prospects to be able to sort of come out on the other side. Sort of like if you're going to borrow a lot of money to start a business, you better have a great plan. <laughs> Otherwise, it may not work out so well. And planning for the future. Uh, there was another couple you spoke to not being on the best footing coming into your later ages is a problem. It changes how you plan for the future future. It changes how you think about money and school again. So there was a couple that you spoke to about how they're talking to their daughter about going to college and they want to help her. They want to provide her with the money to go to college, but they're telling her, start thinking about the major that you want and how the future earnings for that, because if we're going to pay for it, it's got to, it's got to work in the end. This generation has had to be much more focused on that sort of thing. What is my, what are my prospective earnings from the major that I want to study? And that's affecting, among other things, colleges are seeing drops in liberal arts majors. And that even if that, so that has ripple effects through colleges and, and even, you know, not having children. At some point, you can't postpone it anymore. And those children just never come along. And that has lasting effects because your family is sort of your primary source social safety net when you get older in terms of care and help and assistance and smaller families. There's fewer people, fewer kids around to take care of mom or dad, or maybe no kids to take care of mom or dad once they get older. Let's comment a little bit about birth rates. They're their lowest levels in 32 years. So fewer people working in the future means less money in the social safety nets like social security. The birth rates are now at a record low. The number of births is as low as it's been in 30 years, but the birth rate is now at a record low. And right now there's a about 2.8 workers for every person who's on Social Security. And that's going to drop down to about 2.2 in the next 20 years or so. And that just means that somehow we're going to have to figure out through a combination of changes in one side of the equation to the other, how to pay for that imbalance, that growing imbalance. The big fear is that the generation might never catch up, that they might never rebound. Is there any type of bright side, silver lining? I I know that millennials are still young. I mean, you're in your prime earning ages right now. So what is the bright side? I am a baby boomer. And I remember as many of the people who commented on our article were baby boomers and said, you know, things were kind of tough in the late 1970s and early 80s when I hit the job market too. And things worked out. So I guess for the millennials, the bright side is they have much more education. And I think the economists call it social and human capital, the education, but also the connectedness of the networks of friends that they've built. That's how you get jobs. That's your personal safety net. And it 
also can help you stay productive longer. They have longer life expectancies than the baby boomers do because a lot of them in general are not incurring the sort of early kind of deficits to that would knock down their life expectancy. Very few of them are smokers, for instance. And I think the other thing, too, is that in terms of saving for retirement, the baby boomers and Gen X were the first generations to actually have to sort of do it themselves. It used to be there were pensions. And they're the first generations to actually have to figure out the whole 401k and long-term investing planning and stuff like that. We've seen how that didn't work out. And a lot of fixes have sort of been put together. There's mandatory enrollment now at a lot of companies companies in 401ks. There's better matching. There's some states that are offering 401k plans if you don't have one as your employer. So if the millennials can keep chugging along, they have a long horizon and things could work out in the long run. The last question I want to ask is how this impacts political views. There was a Gallup poll last summer that found the millennials were the only generation that favored socialism over capitalism by a slight margin. And anybody who's paying attention to the political discourse right now, there's a lot of talk about socialism and no socialism. There's like an anti-socialism caucus now. Talk about how it could impact political views as well. Well, I think you're seeing an interesting debate going on within the Democratic Party, particularly um, started four years ago by Bernie Sanders and, among other things, his ideas of free college. And another issue that's sort of burbling along there now is this idea of Medicare for everybody, which is sort of an umbrella for a variety of concepts to try to extend health insurance coverage even more broadly. It's very, in the crowded Democratic presidential field, there's all different ideas about how to take this on. And so, you're going to see, I think, a really interesting debate. There's a lot of appetite for change being driven by millennials, who are the voters who are setting up their sort of adult political profiles that will probably stay set for the next 20 to 30 to 40 years. There could be some major changes in this country on that front as we go through the next couple election cycles. Paul Overberg, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Buzzy was this animatronic boy in a uh, closed area of Epcot that his clothes went missing, uh, I think, in August. And then later, the entire robot went missing. Somebody actually took power tools or something and cut through the electric wiring. So it was this big mystery in the Disney community who took this robot, because that's not an easy thing to do. Joining us now is Kelly Weil, reporter for The Daily Beast. We've got a fun story to talk about. It has to do uh, with Disney World. Uh, You know, people love Uh, these kind of behind-the-scenes stories of things that go on at the happiest place on Earth. Um, This uh, story has to do with some theft um, and kind of uh, a bad former employee. So this former employee, his name is Patrick Spikes. He worked at Walt Disney World, and he ended up stealing uh, clothes off of some of the animatronic, uh, uh, you know, uh, little robots there behind the scenes. And now he was just arrested last week. Um, He's being charged with stealing over $14,000 worth of items. He's being charged with burglary, grand theft, dealing in stolen property. Tell us a little bit about Patrick Spikes and what happened to him. So Patrick is a former Walt Disney World employee who set up a behind-the-scenes Disney blog on the side. And these blogs are super popular because, like you said, people want to know what's going on uh, backstage. 
But he's also accused of running a criminal racket while he was there and sneaking back uh, behind the scenes, stealing costumes and selling them on the black market. So he uh, he sort of had his uh, his hand in three Disney enterprises at once. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, he started a Twitter and Instagram uh, YouTube page. Uh, it's called Backdoor Disney, where he was going put, to be putting a bunch of behind the scenes looks. He would go behind the rides and, they, you know, on these underground tunnels that they had for employees and posting a bunch of pictures, things like that. Do we know if he had this set up while he was working there? You know, it's a little ambiguous. Um, he has an old tweet that seems to indicate that he was going to march in a parade. So there might have been some overlap, but we know he left sometime uh, probably in the second half of last year. And after he left, his uh behind-the-scenes footage actually got a little antagonistic with him taunting Disney about telling uh, telling them how he could sneak back in and telling them to buy more security cameras. So uh, there was a turn, definitely, for him. Now, his uh, pages didn't have, uh, you know, huge appeal overall, but as we said, in these online Disney communities, they were starting to pick up a little bit of traction. Um, so he was going behind the scenes, uh, underground tunnels and all this, and he was stealing clothes from some of the animatronics, um, there was one in particular, uh, an animatronic boy called Buzzy from an abandoned Disney World attraction that where he stole the clothes. He stole a little like a mini bomber jacket. I think they said that some of that clothing was worth like $7,000. Um, tell us about that, because that's kind of where the focus started shifting on him and how investigators kind of tracked him down. Yeah, so that is where the investigation started. And funny enough, that's the one thing he's not uh, charged with stealing, but it's definitely what turned investigators on him. Buzzy was this animatronic boy in a uh, closed area of Epcot that his clothes went missing, uh, I think, in August. And then later, the entire robot went missing. Somebody actually took power tools or something and cut through the electric wiring. So it was this big mystery in the Disney community who took this robot, because that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and as investigators started closing in on who might know, uh, he Patrick Spike's name just kept coming up again and again. And even though they haven't uh, got him for stealing the doll, um, which, you know, technically he's not accused of, but they did go back through his financial records and they found all these other things that he stole from them, allegedly. So it was a uh, long, circuitous investigation <laughs> that did, did get him for that. Let's talk about, well, okay, so... He stole some of this clothes. The Disney valued it at about $7,000, some of it. Um, he ended up getting paid about $30,000 from people online who wanted to buy these merchandise. Um, you know, he had to post pictures of it. He posted pictures of the tags. And Disney investigators uh, identified those exact things as stuff that had been stolen from them. Uh, so the people that paid for this stuff, they're cooperating with police. They said they thought that spikes had obtained them legally uh but he made he was making some money off of the, all these stolen items oh yeah he made close to thirty thousand dollars and those are just from the records that investigators have disclosed he was making a lot of money and it goes back to the disney fanaticism some people are so eager to get their hands on something disney that they they'll shell out no matter uh Price can be no no issue for some of them. So it turned into a pretty lucrative uh, side gig. Yeah, one of them was a dress that one of the animatronics wear in the Haunted Mansion. Uh, so uh, you can, uh, of course, people are willing to buy all this stuff. Talk to us about the encounter that Spikes had with police after they had talked to him. Because 
they got a search warrant for his phone, and that's where they found a lot of pictures of these stolen items. But he uh, kind of was playing sick when the police were talking to him. Yeah, so they went and they said, you know, we're taking your phone because we have reason to believe there are pictures of, uh, of the crime scene in there. And he said that he wasn't feeling well, suddenly uh, stopped breathing, laid on the floor, was taken to the hospital before they said, uh-uh, like he checked out fine. And they did charge him with uh, nonviolently resisting arrest. And that was back in December. So he's now got two open cases relating to Disney theft. So that's not a great position to be in for anyone. And so tell us a little bit more about how he was doing all this. I was, like I said, we, we, he's been, he was sneaking behind uh, in these underground tunnels. He snuck his cousin in with a fake photo ID uh, or employee ID. How did he have all this access just because he worked there? He knew all the secrets. I think so. Um, they have all these secret tunnels underground that you don't know about unless you're a Disney employee. And I think while he worked there, he definitely uh, got to, figuring out how some of these things worked. You'll see him tweet about uh, sneaking under fences, in fact, even telling Disney to fill in uh, gaps under the fences once he got in there. So he, I think a combination of personal experience as an employee, realizing how um, he could print out fake badges for people, and then just good old-fashioned breaking and entering, right? He uh, he found the loopholes and he, he got in. It does seem like there's some overlap between his employment and a lot of these heists, uh, do we know why he got fired? Why he was let go from Disney World? It's not clear. None of the criminal reports say, um, and he does not disclose it himself. Um, but it does appear that he was taking pictures while he was at Disney. That is a fireable offense um, in a lot of instances. They take their uh, they take their security very seriously. So you can see... Um, even notifications he posted saying any employees being caught uh, taking pictures outside of authorized areas are liable for termination. So that's a possibility, but we don't know for sure. Yeah, I'd be curious to know the circumstances of that, to know if, you know, his backdoor Disney uh, social media accounts ramped up after he left. You know, there's kind of a payback or something. I'd just be curious to know all of that. Uh, so just tell us where he's at now. He was uh, arrested uh, just uh, earlier this uh, last week or so, um, what do we know about the charges he faces and, and his future? So he's pleaded not guilty, and it's to a few uh, burglary charges. I think one even is a burglary while wearing a mask. I, I could be wrong there, but that carries an enhancement. So he's now pleading not guilty to those charges and to the nonviolently resisting arrest charges. My guess is he's going to have an interesting court case uh, ahead of him because there are miles of electronic records of this guy as police um, did great lengths to show in his criminal complaint. It's um, They've got a lot on him. So I think we might see even more uh, behind-the-scenes Disney in his court case, believe it or not. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea to have all that Disney-related tw uh, stuff on your Twitter, and uh, you know, then you're going to go through a whole, this whole process. Uh, but he's scrubbed all of that in the meantime. So there's, I, I tried to go check out a few of the social media accounts. There's nothing there anymore. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. And it just like I said, I know that the Disney community always uh, pays attention to this stuff. Yeah, they're um, they're up in arms about it. That's not cool with them. Kelly Wild, reporter for the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.